Foley Mara Studios presents A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mine, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hand shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event. But that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story we are going to relate. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve... Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted, hand-of-the-grindstone Scrooge. A squeezing. Wrenching. Grasping. Scraping. Clutching. Covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained. Solitary as an oyster. The coal within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him the time. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of human life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole. It was so dense without that, although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. And there it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge, Scrooge. And sometimes Marley. But he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, 
who, in a dismal little cell beyond, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire. The clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely, as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! Bah! Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah! Humbug. Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in a world of fools such as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a snake of holly through his heart. Uncle! Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good has it ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely. And to think of people as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good, and I say God bless it! The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguish the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go to Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Bah. But why? Why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. (laughs) Because you fell in love. The only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel, to which I have been a party. But I made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow greetings of the season on the clerk who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge. How is that fine family of yours, Mr. Cratchit? Very well, sir. Thank you. 
Wish them a very Merry Christmas from me. I will indeed, sir. Thank you. And a Merry Christmas to you, sir. There's another fellow, my clerk, with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley's been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt. His liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor then? Both very busy, sir. Oh. I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. And what shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you asked me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make... Idle people may. I help support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. And many would rather die. If they would rather die, then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, I don't know that. But you might know it. It's not my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not interfere with... Other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself. Foggier yet and colder. Piercing. Searching, biting cold. The owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Scrooge seized the ruler with such an energy of action that the singer fled in terror leaving the keyhole to fog an even more congenial frost. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If it's quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient. And it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used. And yet, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. Christmas comes but once a year, sir. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. Sir. The office was closed in a twinkling and the clerk, 
with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat, went down a slide of snow at the end of a lane of boys twenty times in honor of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at Blind Man's Bluff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, and nobody lived in it but Scrooge. Now it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it, night and morning, during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge had... As little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. Then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. He half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, Bah! and closed it with a bang. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door, walked across the hall, and up the stairs. Slowly, too. Half a dozen gas lamps out of the street wouldn't have lighted the entry too well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark. Up Scrooge went, not carrying a button for that. Scrooge liked the darkness. It was cheap. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. All as they should be. Quite satisfied, Scrooge closed his door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. His bedroom was lit by a single candle and a small fire in the hearth. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it as he took his gruel when that face of Marley, seven years dead, appeared in the fireplace. Humbug. His glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread, he saw this bell begin to swing so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound. But soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. The bells ceased as they had begun. Together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound. And then 
he heard the noise much louder on the floors below. Then coming up the stairs. Then coming straight towards his door. It's a mug still. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when without a pause, it came through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. The same face. The very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights, and boots. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. What do you want with me? March. Who are you? Ask me who I was. In particular, for a ghost. Who were you then? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... Sit down. I can. Do it then. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You could be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of, of underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you. Whatever you are, humbug. I tell you, humbug. At this point, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round its head, its lower jaw drops down upon its breast... Mercy! Dreadful apparition! Why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do! I must. But why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, It is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander the world. Oh, woe is me. And witness what it cannot share. But might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. You are fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will. And at my own free will, I wore it. Is this pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a wondrous chain. Jacob! Oh, Jacob Marley! Tell me more! Speak comfort to me, Jacob! 
I've none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little of is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. You were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of the rolling year, I saw the most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor boat? Where are the poor homes to which his flight would have conducted me? Here my time is nearly gone. I will. How it is that I appear before you in a shape that you can see, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of of escaping my fate. Ebenezer, you were always a good friend to me. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you, you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I, uh, I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow. When the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once? Have it over, Jacob. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that for your own sake. You remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the specter took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little. So when the specter reached it, it was wide open. Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear. For on the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air. Wailings inexpressly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, 
joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into the mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together. And the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge stared after the ghost. He tried to say, Hump. but stopped at the first syllable. And from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. The ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. So he listened for the hour. Quarter past. Half past. A quarter to it. The hour itself and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did, with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy Light flashed up in the room upon the instant And the curtains of his bed were drawn aside And Scrooge found himself face to face With the unearthly visitor who drew them It was a strange figure, like a child Yet not so like a child as like an old person Viewed through some supernatural medium Which gave them the appearance of having receded from the view And being diminished to a child's proportions. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light by which all was visible. And which doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which it now held under its arm. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. The light is is bright. 
It hurts my eyes. Could you put your cap on? What? Would you so soon put out the light I give? Is it not enough that you were one of those whose passions made this cap? And force me throughout the whole year to wear it low upon my brow? What business brings you here? Your welfare. But good spirit, I cannot help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conductive to that end. Your reclamation, then. Take heed, rise, and walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and hour were not adapted to pedestrian purpose. That bed was warm the thermometer a long way below freezing. That he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown, and nightcap. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window, clasped his robe in supplication. I am mortal and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there upon your heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. It was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Suddenly, Scrooge was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Do you recognize this place? Know it. Good heaven. I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. You recollect the way? <laughs> Remember it. I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them with boys upon their backs, in great spirits, and shouted to each other. Merry Christmas! Until the broad fields were so full of merry music. Merry Christmas! These are but shadows of the things that they have been. They have no consciousness of us. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Mm, I know it. They left the high road and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick with a bell hanging on it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes. The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self intent upon his reading. Poor boy. Suddenly a man in foreign garments stood outside the window. Why, it's Alibaba. It's dear old honest Alibaba. One Christmas time, when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time just like that. And Valentine and his wild brother Orson. And what's his name who was put down in his drawers at the gate of Damascus? Don't you see him? And the sultan's groom was turned upside down by the genie. What business did he have to be married to a princess? <laughs> and the parrot, green body and yellow tail like a thing like lettuce growing out of the top of his head. <laughs> Bull Robinson Crusoe, we called him. Then with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character. Poor boy. I wish... Hmm. But it's too late now. What is the matter? Nothing. Nothing. There was a boy singing Christmas carols at my door last night. I should have liked to have given him something. That's all. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, 
and the room became a little darker and more dirty. There he is, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl much younger than the boy came darting in. Dear, dear brother, I've come to bring you home, dear brother. Home, home. A home, little fan? Yes, home for good and all. Home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be. That home's like heaven. He spoke to me so gently one dear night when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you could come home. And he said, yes, you should, and set me in a coach to bring you. You are quite a woman, little fan. And you ought to be a man and to never come back here. But first, we're to be together all of Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered, but she had a large heart. So she had. You're right. She died a woman, and had, as I think, children. One child. Your nephew, Fred. Yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of the city. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door. Do you know this place? Know it. I was apprenticed here. They went in. There was an old gentleman in a Welsh wig sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Why, it's old Fezziwig. <laughs> Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig. Alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock which pointed to the hour of seven. Yo ho there, Ebenezer, Dick! Dick Wilkins? To be sure. Bless me, yes. There he is. He was very much attached to me. It was Dick. Poor Dick. Dear, dear. Yo-ho, my boys! No more work tonight! Christmas Eve, Dick! Christmas, Ebenezer! Let's have the shutters up before a man can say Jack Robinson. You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it. Hilly-ho! Clear away, my lads! Let's have lots of room here! Hilly-ho! Dick! Uh, cheer up, Ebenezer. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off, as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped on the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast, substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, Beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came the cook, with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Well done! There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there were mince pies, and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast, when the fiddlers struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. She was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. A small match, 
to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small. Is it not? You spend but a few pounds of your mortal money. Three or four, perhaps? Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy. To make ourselves light or burdensome. A pleasure or toil. The happiness he gives us is quite as great as if it costs a fortune. What is the matter? Nothing in particular. Something, I think. No, I, I should just like to be able to say a word or two to my clock. That's just now. That's all. My time grows short. Quick. Scrooge saw himself. He was older now. A man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years. But it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken root. It matters little. To you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. What then, even if I have grown so much wiser? What then? I am not changed towards you, am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until in good season we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are. I am. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it. And can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words. No, never. In what, then? In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me. Would you seek me out and try to win me now? Huh? No. You think not? If you were free today, can I even believe that you would choose a dowerless girl... You, who, in every confidence with her, weigh everything by gain. I release you, Ebenezer, with a full heart, for the love of him you once were. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? One shadow more. No more. No more. I do not wish to see it. Show me no more. They were in another scene in place. A room, not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. They were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like forty. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, 
so like that last that Scrooge believed it was the same, until he saw her mother sit opposite her. But now, a knocking at the door was heard. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside, and he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father. Belle, I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Yes. How can I? (laughs) Don't I know? Mr. Scrooge? Mr. Scrooge, it was. I passed his office window as it was not shut up and he had a candle inside. I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear. And there he sat, alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit! Remove me from this place! I told you these were shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me! I cannot bear it! Leave me! Take me back! Haunt me no longer! Scrooge observed that his light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap and, by a sudden action, pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form. But though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Scrooge awoke and felt he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good broad field of strange appearances and that nothing between a baby and rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. However, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. All this time, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour and which being the only light was more alarming than a dozen ghosts. He began to think that the source and secret of the ghostly light might be in the adjoining room. From hence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. And the moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him. Ebenezer Scrooge! Come in! Come in and know me better, man! It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, long wreaths of sausages, plum puddings, cherry-cheeked apples, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch, that it made the chamber dim with delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see. 
Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. And though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, born in these later years. I don't think I have. I'm afraid I have not. Have you had many, Spirit? More than 1,800. A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe, Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pig, sausage, oysters, pies, pudding, fruit, it punch, all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The day was brisk and not unpleasant, covered in snow. The poulterers' shops were open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes, piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. The steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The spirit stood with Scrooge beside it in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from its torch. Is there a peculiar flavor? In which you sprinkle from your torch? There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Because it needs it most. Spirit, I wonder you, of all the beings on these many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I? You would deprive them of the means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, wouldn't you? I? Well, you seek to close these places on the seventh day, and that comes to the same thing. I seek? Forgive me if I am wrong. It has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family. There are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name who are strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. I promise that I will. And perhaps it was a spirit's own kind, generous, hearty nature, and a sympathy for all poor men that led it straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there it went and took Scrooge with it. And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinklings of its torch. We were outside the baker's and we could smell the goose. And we knew it was ours. (sighs) What has ever got your precious father then and your brother, Tiny Tim? 
And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour. Oh, here, here's Martha, Martha Mother. Martha, Martha, you're here. Here's Martha. Come quick, look at the goose. Martha, come quickly. Merry Christmas, Martha. There's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are. Oh, had a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, Mother. Well, never mind. So long as you are come, sit down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. Lord bless you. No, no, there's Father coming. Hi, Hi Mother. Hi, under the table. Over here, over here. Hi, over here. Father, see you. Under the table, coming. Martha hides herself. Bob Cratchit enters with at least three feet of comforter. Exclusive of the fridge, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and tiny Tim upon his shoulder, bearing his crutch. Why, where are Martha? <sighs> Not coming. <gasps> Not coming? Not coming on Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed if it were only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms. While the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off, that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave? As good as girls and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things he ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day, who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Him is growing strong and hardy. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose with which they soon returned in high procession. At last, the dishes were set on the table and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board. There has never been such a goose cooked. They ate and talked and enjoyed themselves. Everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates were being changed by Belinda. Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in, turning out. <laughs> Suppose that somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it, while we were all making merry with the goose. A great deal of steam. Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding. It is to be regarded, my dear, as your greatest success. Since our marriage. Now the weight is off my mind. I confess I had my doubts about the quantity of flour. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless, God bless us. us. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us. Yeah, here. God bless us. Everyone. Tiny Tim sits very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, oh no, 
No kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he liked to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. You quote my own words to me. Perhaps then it is wise to hold your tongue until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. To Mr. Scrooge! I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of a feast, indeed. I wish I'd had a mere and give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children. Christmas Day? It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, odd, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day? I'll drink his health, for your sake. And the days, not for his. Long life to him. A merry Christmas and happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. But they were happy. Grateful pleased with one another, and contented with the time. They faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting. Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. See? A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced toward it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled around a glowing fire. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe and passing on above the moor, sped to sea. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, above the black and heaving sea, far away from any shore. They lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch. Dark, ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune and every man on board had a kinder word for another on that day. There was a great surprise to Scrooge. While listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over the unknown abyss to hear a hearty laugh. (laughs) (laughs) It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. Scrooge's niece by marriage laughed as heartily as he. 
He said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. She was very pretty. Exceedingly pretty. With a dimple, surprised-looking, capital face. All kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed. And the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's head. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He won't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. Oh, I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself. Always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He loses a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. I quite agree. Do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. After tea, they played music and sang. Then they played games such as forfeits, blind man's bluff, and how, when, and where. For it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas. Our time is short. We must go. But we can't go. Here's a new game. One half hour spirit. Only one. Only one. Fred, shall we play yes and no next? Yes, my dear. That's a wonderful idea. This is a game called Yes and No, where I will think of something and you must find out what. You may only ask questions that can be answered by yes or no. Until you've arrived at a guess as to what it might be. Sounds fun and simple enough. Wait. Wait. I've got something in mind. Is it an animal? Yes. A live animal? Yes. A savage animal? Yes. <laughs> Does it howl or hoot? No. Does it growl? Yes. Does it live in London? Yes. Oh, oh, I have found it out. I know what it is. What is it, my dear? It's your Uncle Scrooge. Why, yes, it is. It most certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> he has given us plenty of merriment today, I'm sure. And it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. And I say, Uncle Scrooge. Well, Uncle Scrooge. Wait. Not yet. And much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital, and jail. In misery's every refuge where vain man, in his little brief authority, had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out. It left its blessing and taught Scrooge its precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, 
looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. Are spirits' lives so short? My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange, not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot? Or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children. Wretched. Abject. Frightful. Hideous. Miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Spirit, are they yours? They are man's, and they cling to me. This boy is ignorant. This girl is want. Beware them both, and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse. And abide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground toward him. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more. For the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any specter I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was... I am prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? Lead on. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, and suddenly, there they were, in the heart of the city amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets, and conversed in groups, and looked at their watches, and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals, and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, Observing that the hand was pointed to them, 
Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? Thought he'd never die. God knows. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral. For in my life, I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed. The phantom glided on into his street, its finger pointed at two persons meeting. Scrooge listened, again, thinking that the explanation might lie here. Well, old Scratch has got his own at last, eh? Mm-hmm. Cold, isn't it? Seasonable for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no. Something else to think of. Good morning. Why was I privy to that? What purpose have you to let me know of such trivial conversations? They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town, where Scrooge had never penetrated before. Although he recognized its situation and its bad repute, the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth, and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed shop, where secrets that few would like to scrutinize lay hidden in mountains of unseemly rags, masses of corrupted fat, and sepulchres of bones. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in was a gray-haired rascal, nearly 70 years of age, with a pipe. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the charwoman alone to be the first. Let the laundress alone to be the second. And let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe. Here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come on into the parlor. Come into the parlor. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No man more so. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead. Wicked old screw. Why was it a natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death. Instead of lying, gasping out his last there, alone, by himself. It's the truest word that ever was spoke. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment. And it should have been. You may depend upon it. If I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first. Not afraid for them to see it. We know pretty well that we're helping ourselves. <laughs> Before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. Sheets and towels, little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. That's your count. 
I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine. That's the way I ruin myself. Here's mine. A seal or two, uh, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, uh, and a brooch. No great value here. Uh, this is the whole lot. That's your account. And I wouldn't give another sixpence if it was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Anand, do my bundle, Joe. What do you call this? Bed curtains? You, you don't mean to say you took them down rings and all with them lying there? Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune. You'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't all my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out. For the sake of such a man as he was, I promise you, Joe. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Who's else do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. Hoping in door of anything catching, eh? Don't you be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Oh. You may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find out on it, nor Fredbear Place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? Putting it on him to be buried in it, to be sure. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If Calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Scrooge listened in horror. As they sat grouped about their spoil, in the scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp, he viewed them with a detestation and disgust which could hardly have been greater, though they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. <laughs> this is the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to proffer us when he was dead. <laughs> Spirit, I see. I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven! What is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed. And now he almost touched a bed. A bare, uncurtained bed. On which beneath a ragged sheet, there lay something covered up. The room was very dark. Too dark to be observed with any accuracy. Though Scrooge glanced around it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. Spirit. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let us go. Still, the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. If there is any person in this town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, show that person to me, spirit. I beseech you. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, a dwelling he had visited before, 
and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. The Cratchits were still as statues in one corner and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. And he took a child and set him in the and he set him in the midst of them. Mrs. Cratchit laid her sewing work upon the table. The color hurts my eyes. They're better now, gang. Makes them weak by candlelight. And and I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home. For the world. It must be near his time. Passes, rather. But I think he was walking a little slower than he used these few last evenings, Mother. I've known him walk with... I've known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Very fast indeed. And so have I. Often. Ah, but he was very light to carry, and his father loved him so that it was no trouble. No trouble. (laughs) Oh, and there's your father at the door. He was so long in getting home tonight. Look at all you've done today. We'll be done long before Sunday. You went today, then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green the place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. Today I saw Mr. Scrooge's nephew, Fred, in the street. He stopped me and told me I looked, as he said, a little, uh, just a little down. And asked me what it was that distressed me. He's a man of extraordinary kindness. When I told him, he looked truly sad and said, I am heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, and for your good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, give me his card. That's where I live. Pray, come to me. No, it wasn't for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us so much as his, for his kind way. And this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim. My, my little child. My little child. However, and whenever we part from one another, I'm sure we shall none of us forget poor Tiny Tim. Shall we? Or this first parting that there was among us. Never, Never, Father. And I know, I know, my dears, that when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a little, little child, We shall not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor tiny Tim in doing it. No. Never, Father. I could never, Father. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I don't know how. 
Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time, he thought. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man he now had to learn lay underneath the ground. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be? Or are they shadows of things that may be only? Still, the spirit pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if those courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been, but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Good spirit, your nature deceives me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and I will keep it all through the year. I will live in the past, in the present, in the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not set out the lessons they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. Trunk collapsed and dwindled down into a a bedpost. Yes, the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own and the room was his own. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob. On my knees. They're not torn down. They're not torn down, rings and all. They're here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been been dispelled. They will be. I know they will. I don't know what to do. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. (laughs) A merry Christmas to everyone and a happy new year to all the world. There's the saucepan that the ghoul was in. There's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas presents sat. There's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. It's all right. It's all true. It's all happened. (laughs) I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. He was checked in his transports by the churches ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. He opened his window 
and put out his head. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, jovial. Stirring. Cold. Piping for the blood to dance to. Golden sunlight. Heavenly sky. Sweet, fresh air. Merry bells. There was a boy in Sunday clothes walking past. Hello. Boy. Yes, you. What's today? Eh? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why, C- Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. Well, they can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can! Hello, my fine fellow! Hello! Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. Intelligent boy. Remarkable boy. <clears throat> do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey. The big one. Oh, what? The one as big as me? <laughs> Delightful boy. Pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now, is it? Go and buy it. And tell them to bring it here. That I may give them directions to where to take it. Come back with a man, and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes, and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got a shot off half so fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. You shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did, somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there, waiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it, as long as I live. I scarcely looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Here's the turkey. Hello! Whoop! How are you? Merry Christmas! Now that is a turkey. That bird could never have stood on its own legs. <laughs> Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. Shaving was not an easy task, for his hand continued to shake very much. And shaving requires attention, even when you don't dance while you are at it. He dressed himself all in his best, and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! He had not gone far when coming on towards him, he beheld the portly gentleman who had walked into his counting house the day before, and said, My dear sir, how do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Mr. Scrooge. Scrooge. Yes, that is my name. And I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon. And will you have the goodness? Lord bless me. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please. And not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I can assure you. Will you do me that favor? My dear sir, I don't know what to say. Don't say anything, please. And come and see me. Will you come and see me? I will. Thank you. I am much obliged to you. I thank you 50 times. Bless you. He went to church and walked about the streets. And watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head. And questioned beggars. And looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything 
could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that any thing could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps toward his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? He's in the dining room, sir, along with mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank you, he knows me. I'll go in here, my dear. His hand already on the dining room lock. He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table, which was spread out in great array. For these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see that everything is right. Fred. I bless my soul. Who's that? Uncle Scrooge? It is I. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Of course. Yes. Yes, let him in. Uncle Scrooge, you've never met. This is my wife. It is a pleasure to meet you at last. She's very beautiful, Fred. My nephew has gracefully agreed to let me dine with you this day, if it is not too much of an imposition. It would be our pleasure. I'll go, I'll go tell. Just add another place for dinner. After dinner, might we play some games? Of course, if you'd like. I've grown very fond of them as of late. Do you know Yes and No? Oh, yes, it is one of our favorite games. Scrooge was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past? No Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door. His comforter, too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen, as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Bob Cratchit! What do you mean by coming at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I ain't behind my time. Yes, you are. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. I am not going to stand for this any longer. And therefore, and therefore, I am about to raise your salary. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Scrooge? A Merry Christmas, Bob! A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you in many a year. I'll raise your salary, and I'll endeavor to assist your struggling family. We'll discuss your affairs this very afternoon, over a Christmas bowl, Bob. Make up the fires, and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all. And infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as a good old city knew. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. 
for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge... May that be truly said of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one. Foley Maris Studios presents A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Adapted and directed by Chuck and Megan Mara. Featuring Chuck Mara as Scrooge. And the voice talents of Bill Attaway, Susan DeMonte, Todd Geideshek, Dennis W. Hall, Kat Hammonds, Camden Hodges, Victoria Kellerman, Aiden Lane, Jessica Lee, Maddie Lucas, Margot Moreau, Anton Prather, and Rebecca Chabau. Sound editing by Kat Hammonds and Chuck Mara. Sound design by Todd Geideshek. Music and sound effects licensed through Soundstripe, Adobe, Ghost Hack, and Duende Sounds. Be sure to subscribe to our channel to be notified about our next audio event. And please check out our recreations of the 1940 series Quiet Please on all major podcast networks. <laughs>